This is Maggie Jones and Nashville Wonders. Another hunting trip with Francis Hammerstrom. From Is She Coming Too? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. Fran and her husband Frederick were born in the early 1900s and became premier biologists here in Wisconsin. They were graduate students studying under Aldo Leopold at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He directed them on the path to the central sands to study prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse, which were declining as agriculture was advancing. In her own spare time, she conducted decades-long groundbreaking studies on many species of birds of prey and wrote books about her raptor adventures and research. Aldo Leopold was a stickler for excellent writing his influence is very apparent to me when I read Franz's books. Her last name is spelled H-A-M-E-R-S-T-R-O-M. Frederick died in 1990, and Franz died in 1998. Do look at the Wisconsin Conservation Hall of Fame website to see who the inductees into the Hall of Fame are. They are the best of us fascinating Wisconsin conservationists working to save the diversity and beauty that is Wisconsin. The website pages are not only filled with biographical information, but also fascinating letters and correspondence, articles, and publications of these people honored in the Hall of Fame. That's wchf.org, Wisconsin Conservation Hall of Fame. Now, is she coming too? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter and the chapter called Swamp Buck. Just get a job with the Conservation Department. Hunt and fish the rest of your life. Well, I did get a job with the Wisconsin Conservation Department in 1950, and hunting, especially deer hunting, was swiftly curtailed. We worked at checking stations during the deer season. So Frederick and I usually got little time off for hunting, and we tended to be in a totally unfamiliar part of the state with no chance to do even the most preliminary scouting. Each year, my hopes followed the same sequence when sighting in my rifle. I dreamed of shooting an enormous swamp buck with a rack that would make everyone marvel. After a few hours of field, I was ready to settle for any legal deer, Wisconsin had just permitted a doe season. Some purists feel that only yellow bellies would shoot a doe, but I confess a doe would have made me very happy. After a few more hours, it was plain to me that still hunting, stalking, wasn't getting me anywhere. But I usually managed to pick up a blood trail. Well, I suppose you know what I was hoping by now. I was hoping to find a dead deer lying at the end of the trail. I don't know why I should be telling anybody my secret thoughts. Right now, I would like to make one thing perfectly clear. Never in my whole life did I start the day so depleted in spirit that I longed for a trail leading to somebody else's dead deer. One year, Os Matson guided us in his home terrain near Black River Falls. Os put us each on a stand and told us to stay put. Os got a shot with his borrowed Egyptian. He was so startled by all the smoke from the black powder that we never heard why he didn't get his deer. 
Frederick was also shooting a borrowed rifle. He had almost refused to come. He was deep into a research project on central Wisconsin deer. He predicted the Wisconsin eruption as early as 1940. After checking on populations and evaluating over-browsing, he figured the knowledge so obtained gave him unfair advantage. To come right out with it, he figured getting his deer would be too easy. Frederick finally came on the Black River Falls hunt, not because he wanted to, but to please us and me. I feared that it would probably be the last time in his life that anybody was going to persuade him to indulge in anything so banal as deer hunting in Wisconsin. Frederick prefers still hunting, but he can sit absolutely motionless on a stand. My man just never fidgets. The number of deer in that section near Black River Falls was astounding. Their hoofs kept pummeling like horses chased around in a pasture. Frederick chose the intersection of two major runways and bided his time. Does came tripping along, cracking twigs and otherwise drawing attention to themselves. A few minor bucks passed within easy range. Then, just as he had figured, came a really nice one. Frederick, moving almost imperceptibly, raised his borrowed rifle, pulled the trigger, and that blessed rifle misfired. He didn't get another shot. Oss put me on a beautiful stand. It was on a tiny oak island deep in a tamarack swamp. Sharp-edged runs had been pounded into the soft sphagnum, and the run past my stand would bring any deer into perfect position. Of course, I couldn't see any of these fine attributes of my position because it was pitch dark when Oss guided me to a log and whispered, Sit here. The woods were so quiet. Oss treads lightly in the woods, but I could hear him depart. I got to dreaming about that big swamp buck and was well into this pleasant occupation when suddenly somebody coughed so close that he seemed right next to me. I couldn't shift to find another stand because it would be impolite to us. The guy coughed again. I coughed back. He coughed louder. So did I. What this innocent man, who was probably from the city, didn't realize was that he was up against an expert. One developed certain survival skills in the country, where the telephone company sometimes put as many as eight families on one party line. Ours had eight. Eight families add up to about 30 people using the same phone, and among those 30, there were bound to be at least one or two who liked to use the phone for visiting, and visiting could take a long, long time. Mind you, these eight families are your near neighbors, and it pays to get along with them. One can lift up the receiver and listen to see whether anyone is on the line. Visits go something like this. You don't say. Uh-huh. Well, I never. What did she do then? She told. You don't say. Everybody in all eight families knew my voice because I am a Bostonian and have said to talk as though I have plums in my mouth. It wasn't long after we had the phone put in that I realized that people did not like to be interrupted while visiting. Sometimes when I wanted to telephone, 
I'd lift the receiver up, off, and on for about 40 minutes, and at last I'd say, Could you please let me use the telephone? Yes, Mrs. Hammerstrom. And I had the uneasy feeling that I hadn't made a friend, so I used coughing. I'd lift up the receiver and hear, You don't say, and then I'd have a coughing fit right into the mouthpiece. Effie, you caught cold? Nope. Then I'd cough some more. Nobody could tell who was coughing. They couldn't even tell if it was a man or a woman. Pretty soon the visiting was not going very well, and it just took another cough or so to hear the welcome words, I guess I'll call you later. The guy on my little oak island coughed again, and I gave him my long, wheezy version of the telephone type. It was getting light, and I knew I didn't have much time, so I tried all different types of coughing on him, except the soft type. He didn't hear any soft coughing from my direction. At last he got up and shuffled away. Not long after sunup, Oss reappeared so silently that I barely heard him coming. Let's get out of here. I know a place where there won't be many hunters. So Oss and Frederick and I went back to the car, which now had cars parked all around it, like traffic near a football stadium. Oss took us to a place where we didn't see a single other hunter, neither did we see a single deer, and yes, toward dusk, I got to daydreaming about following a trail that led me not to an excellent opportunity to shoot a big buck, but to some lost deer just lying there dead. After this fiasco, you can well imagine my frame of mind when Dave Seal telephoned me from Illinois and invited me to go bow hunting with him. Yes, Dave. Then I told Frederick. Dave Seal, whom we both knew to be a museum man and a skilled hunter, had invited me to go bow hunting with him. And Frederick asked, At Nasita? Yes, I guessed. How did you know? Honey, he wants you for a guide. You know that country. Well, I answered a little huffily. It's better than having people say, Is she coming too? Frederick tried another approach. Have you ever shot a bow? Yes. A pained expression must have flickered over my face because he dropped the subject. I was thinking of Camp Oasa, a girls' camp on Cape Cod. We were to have a sports competition with another girls' camp, but some of our best athletes came down with measles. I'd had measles, and I was naturally good at sports, so I was suddenly entered in the archery contest. I wore a short-sleeved midi blouse and bloomers, and nobody told me about wearing an arm guard. I didn't miss the target often, but my forearm was reddish with a tinge of purple and somewhat bloodied up. That afternoon, I entered essentially every water sport and found that swimming and diving in salt water causes a bloodied up arm to smart. Frederick is good to me. He could tell I really wanted to go bow hunting with Dave, so he suggested that I borrow Aldo Leopold's Osage Orange Bow and get some practice before the season opened. Bob McCabe had inherited Aldo's bow and gladly lent it to me. Bob Ellerson lent me a quiver of arrows. The arrows were hunting arrows, and I was admonished not to use them for target practice, so I practiced indoors, sort of. Aldo's bow had a 55-pound pull. I couldn't begin to pull it. 55 pounds. 
I could chin myself twenty times and do push-ups till I was tired of counting them, but that bow resisted my efforts. So I went at the matter methodically. Every day, I stood in front of the mirror in our living room and pulled that bow as far as I could. I'm ambidextrous, so when one arm got tired, I switched to the other. After a few weeks, I could pull that bow slowly and evenly and hold it pulled steadily and with either hand. The only thing lacking was an arrow. On opening day, Dave and I set forth. I had visualized the aroma of wintergreen underfoot, sweet fern brushing our shins and the tranquility of the wilderness. But bow hunting at Nasita had become popular. There were lots of cars. I found an arrow on the way to the stand where I was going to put Dave. And just as we got there, a hunter came bursting forth. It seemed in a panic. Trouble? Dave asked. Got to get to the car. Need another quiver of arrows. Dave, I was going to put you here, but do you mind getting your feet wet? Dave grinned. He had picked the right guide. We moseyed off to the west, ploshed through some moderately cold water, and found ourselves totally isolated from the rest of mankind. We each picked ourselves a stand. Mine was neatly hidden in some scrubby jack pines. My thoughts? At that time in the morning, I was still dreaming about the big swamp buck and hadn't lowered myself to any of the lesser aspirations. That big swamp buck was about to come up out of that marsh and stand broadside. He did! I raised up and pulled that bow ever so slowly. The buck was so close that I could almost count his eyelashes. I held steady, but I couldn't figure out which hand to let go with. I held steady, following that swamp buck as he slowly walked away from me. If I let go with the wrong hand, the bow would bash me in the face. If I let go with the right hand, I would at last kill the buck of my dreams. I held steady while the buck of my dreams, my swamp buck, slowly, very slowly, walked away. And that's the end of the swamp buck chapter in Fran Hammerstrom's book, Is She Coming To? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. What a woman. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you so much for listening.